0: Welcome to or welcome back to the Journey Through Life podcast. I am Justin Barton and am the host of this show. I'm very grateful to have you as a listener today. Now, as you listen today or to any of our other episodes, past, present, or future, and you have the name or image of a friend or family member pop into your mind, please share that episode with them. Acting on that thought can and will bring blessings and joy to you and to that person that comes to mind. I'm very excited to continue this very special to me 12-week series of the Journey Through Life podcast. This series is called Journey in Recovery. I have interviewed many different people from many different locations and different backgrounds on each of the 12 steps of recovery as laid out originally in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, before you shut this off and say, this doesn't apply to me, I'm asking you to please give it a shot for the next several weeks. Whether you or I are an actual addict or not, I know that we all have weaknesses in our lives. Some of these weaknesses may be something that no one knows about but but ourselves. But if we really wish to move past them, we will do all that we can to do so. Now, I have experienced that learning of and applying the 12 steps of recovery can be beneficial to really any human being who goes into it with real intent and applies the principles of these steps into their lives, that they will be able to move through any addiction, any habit, any self-destructive or unwanted behavior. And this can include anything from full-blown drug and alcohol addiction, including prescription medications, Um, It could include something like cutting or eating disorders or something as seemingly insignificant but just as gripping as smartphones, video games, social media. This week we will be hearing the experience, strength, and hope of a couple couple of people in two different episodes and their own experiences in Step 8. We will start today with John, a recovering alcoholic and drug addict. And as you listen, you will just be able to hear the value he puts on being honest with himself and others in this conversation. Now, honesty with self and others is really one of the cores of real recovery from anything, including addiction. If this is your first episode of this series or of this podcast as a whole, I highly recommend that you go back and listen to all nine of the previous episodes of this Journey in Recovery series at some point. There are 12 steps, and they are in a prescribed order for a reason. So, whether you do that now or after you listen to this episode, I really do invite you to listen to the others and then continue with steps 9 through 12 over the next several weeks. Step 8 reads: made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. In this conversation, John talks about his walk through decades of addiction and choices that brought him to the place of being willing to make amends and then making amends. You can just hear the efforts at being completely honest with himself and others and his desire to help all and share the message of recovery with everyone. This is an honest and open conversation with a man who has seen the light and strives to walk in it. In this and other conversations, you may be introduced to concepts that you have never before considered, or may even seem contradictory to what you have considered truth for perhaps your whole life. But these concepts are shared as honestly and openly as possible, using real experiences that cannot be denied as being true to these people sharing them. While you listen, take mental or physical notes of ideas of self-improvement that pop into your head. Then, at the end of this podcast, review those notes and make a plan about how you can implement them. Now kick back hit the road, work out, do house or yard work, or whatever you do while listening to podcasts and be ready to learn and feel and gain insights like you may have never considered it before. Here we go with John. All right, so through the magic of internet and video camera, I'm sitting here face to face with John. I'm excited about this, excited to get to know you and your story. So introduce yourself as if you were sitting in a, in a room and uh, tell me a little bit about yourself.
1: So uh, my name is John. I am an addict. Hi, John. Hi. Hi, Justin.
0: Tell me a little bit about your addiction and, uh, and then we'll get into the story behind it.
1: Okay. So I, I was addicted to a heroin, a methadone, uh, cocaine. And uh, after I had stopped all of that for five years, I realized that I had also been addicted to alcohol as a teenager and a,
0: and a young man. Hmm. So kind of alcohol was your gateway into those other things? Is that, am I understanding that correctly?
1: It's the first uh, drug that I turned to, yes.
0: Okay. So tell me a little bit about your first experiences with alcohol and what made you as you've come through these other drugs and substances, what made you go back to alcohol and think, "Huh, I'm an alcoholic and I found that as a teen
1: yeah, so I probably had my first drink when I was fourteen, and uh, nothing really happened. Uh, it was a beer, and I may have had some beers after that also without any you know consequences or not really thinking anything was wrong and then when I was fifteen um, uh, me and another fella. Uh, well, he, he was, he was experienced at what he was doing, and he, he brought a, uh, a board, a pint of wine, and we started to drink it. And that was the first time, basically, I lost control, where I couldn't control the amount that I was going to have. I drank much more than I than was a, a normal person would have. Been. In other words, when I felt it coming on, I just kept drinking Mm-hmm. I got uh, very drunk uh, to the point where I, when I went home, my mother noticed that I
0: was drunk. And do you remember what your mom said when you got home for that first time that she noticed that? It's interesting you asked
1: you ask that because, uh, yeah, she's, she's, the first thing she told me is your shirt is inside out and you're drunk. And uh, so I always say that that's a, that was the story of my life, that uh, everything was kind of inside out, upside down for the next 30 years. My father, he may not have been an alcoholic, but he was definitely a hard drinker. Uh, so my mother was really used to that, and she wasn't kind of freaked out by it. Other than, uh, you know, she probably scolded me and told me not to do that again.
0: Mm. And how did that work? Her telling you not to do that again.
1: Well, I mean, I I don't you know it never played into that I did it again. It's just that uh, what I was finding from the alcohol was what they talk about in the big book, which was, I was, you know, alcoholics drink because they like the feeling and it provides a sense of ease and comfort. Mm -hmm. I had just came to this country a year earlier at 14 from England. I didn't adjust well. I was probably depressed. I was homesick. I was lonesome for London. And, uh, you know, you take a drink and that all goes away. And, you know, I've learned throughout the years that the, the addiction is just a symbol, but it's the underlying, uh, the underlying actually selfishness and self-centeredness that is the issue. Hmm. Always about ourselves and, you know, selfish actions is what the underlying problem is.
0: Interesting. So you moved from England to the United States as a youth. And I didn't pick up on that being the accent that I heard as an English accent until you said London. (laughs) I was like, Oh, so, so tell me a little bit about where you settled in, you know, geographically in the United States.
1: We came from London, myself, my father and uh, my mother, and my youngest sister to live with my mother's older sister, who she really didn't know that well because there was like a 19 year age difference. And we were kind of under the impression, uh, that America was that the streets were paved with gold or the pavements were paved in gold. It was kind of a kind of expression that people used at that time. And we had a very hard acclimate, you know, time acclimate, especially my father. My father, he was promised a job in, in order to come over here. And when he arrived, he found out that that was basically my uncle had said that he had a job so that he could come over, but that he wouldn't, Help him to get a job. And my father basically found his own work. It was very stressful initially because nobody was working. And my mother and father weren't working. They were very hardworking individuals and that was freaking them out.
0: And about what year was that when you guys came over?
1: 1961. And we moved into an apartment with my mother, with my aunt, my uncle, And I believe there was three, yes, uh, there was three cousins living there also. And then it was my mother and father and, uh, you know, myself and my sister. So I was very crowded. And, uh, you know, that whole thing also that after three days, uh, it's like a no-go with relatives, you know. So we, we were starting to get on each other's nerve. I think we lived there for probably a month or two.
0: And with those stresses in life, it's, it's not a huge surprise that uh, when you found an escape to that through whatever medium it would have been, alcohol in this case, you found it. Um, how do you think that, that those experiences continued to develop as you walked through the paths of addiction from alcohol to the other substances you talked about?
1: When I was 14, I was already a heavy smoker. and. Mm. Uh, you know, that was part of the addiction also. And anything uh, that was going on contributed to the to the idea that I needed to drink. You know, the alcohol became, it became the solution to my problems, which was I was having difficulty really uh, growing up as an adolescent and a teenager in, and uh, was looking for escape, was looking for escape, couldn't really deal well with uh, with other people with uh, girls, uh, with uh, ideas of, you know, having a, a kind of plan to go to college and or finish high school, go to college and work and marry. That was never – I don't know if any teenagers thinks of that beginning in teenagehood, but I think at some point they may start to think about it as they reach uh, maybe high school and are ready to enter college. But all I – I could think of was uh, basically uh, getting high in one form or another and kind of escaping all of that.
0: Hmm. So once, when did you realize, Hey, I might have a problem and it might be causing me harm and those around me harm.
1: You know, Justin, I, I don't think I ever realized that. I don't think I realized that. And, uh, you know, everybody else knew that I had the problem and told me I had the problem. Uh, but. I always thought that either I wasn't uh, doing it well enough, I didn't have enough of it, or I had just basically, especially when I turned to drugs, I, I bought into the lifestyle that went along with drugs. Hmm. And uh, so I never really thought that there was a problem. You know, it was just that uh, the problem was that I, I couldn't get enough of it. And if I didn't have it, I would, you know, start to withdraw or get sick. And then that would always spur me on to getting more drugs or trying to get more drugs. Hmm. I, uh, just, just on an aside, when I realized I had the problem was when I had already stopped using drugs in a rehab. And during that rehab stay, I had the thought, which I had never had before, that, guess what, John? When you leave here, you're going to use drugs again. You're going to drink and use drugs. And I had never had that thought before. I'd always had the thought that, oh, this time it's going to be different. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do it again. Always in my in my head, it was that someday things would be normal. I would get married. I would have the house, the picket fence, the white picket, mm-hmm. fence, the two and a half kids. You know, it would, it would, you know, the nuclear family that he used to talk about years ago. That somehow that would magically happen, and I would stop drinking. Hmm. I had no clue what the problem was. I had no clue what the solution was. And, you know, that was the first indication of... Uh, it was really a first step experience, which was that I knew that I couldn't stop.
0: And about what year was this experience here in the rehab where that you had that thought?
1: I was 45 at that time.
0: Hmm. So is that what you equate your rock bottom? Is that where your rock bottom was? Or did you have to find... Rock bottom somewhere else after that.
1: I would say that was the rock bottom as far as the. Uh, I then had maybe you know was close to like the desperation of a drowning man, like because uh, I never thought that I wasn't in control. Now I knew I wasn't, and what do I do about that? Mm-hmm. I mean, I've had I've had many rock bottoms as far as uh, uh, consequences, but that was kind of a rock bottom of where. I understood the problem. And even then, I would say that I hadn't drank for maybe or used drugs for 25 years when I really knew what the problem was, as 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 it is explained in the doctor's opinion in the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, yeah.
0: So at that point, as you came to yourself, I guess, and realized, hey, I got a problem and I don't know exactly what it is. I don't know what the solution is. How did you had you attended twelve-step uh, meetings before that point, or was it just rehab facilities? I had
1: actually attended. Uh, I mean, a big part of my story, as far as uh, that, I had been. I had been in prison, and after I was there a while, I I was attending a a program in New York State that was in the prison system, and they actually utilized the twelve steps and. Mm-hmm. But there wasn't an emphasis on the steps of course and then there was an argument one day about higher power and uh, i admitted that i i believed in a higher power or god but that i hadn't any relationship with him and i hadn't prayed or attended any service for the last 30 years and that you know i didn't know where he was but it was some something way out in the you know, the universe and, Hmm. but that shortly after that, I was, I don't know if I was walking in the prison, if I was back uh, in my living court, whatever it was, I don't know exactly where I was, but I asked God to lift the obsession to use drugs. And it was lifted that day. I never had the obsession since then. I stopped all of the drug seeking and drug using behaviors that I was doing in the prison, Hmm. because there was uh, drugs there. And then I uh, was eventually paroled. And, but I, I gave this kind of lip service to God, that basically God was somebody that I could possibly call on once in a while if I needed him, hmm. uh, but never had any. Uh, I think I said a prayer in the morning, and that was about it. But I hadn't changed in any way uh, at all, other than I didn't use drugs. And then when I was paroled, I didn't attend meetings. They had suggested to attend meetings. And it was, it was all fear-based. I didn't realize it then. And uh, that's why I didn't go. So I then did, did uh, in the rehab, they that meetings came in and they took us out to meetings and I just hit the ground running to attend meetings after that.
0: Hmm. Interesting. And so tell me about your first, uh, at least your first meaningful experience with the steps, maybe getting a sponsor for the first time and how, Um, What sort of awakenings may have happened as you went through that?
1: You know, I went to my first meeting and I was, uh, it was a Narcotics Anonymous meeting. I was very much welcomed there during the secondary's break. Everybody started cheering and stomping on the floor. And I felt that I was home, that I had, you know, that now I belong somewhere. Prior, you know, when I was parole, I was basically completely isolated and uh, by myself a lot. So now I was around people, and that was very important. And you know, I always wanted to do the steps and uh, change sponsors to try and accomplish that. I did the steps through a a book. I don't want to mention the name of it. It was written by one person. And at that point, that was probably what I needed to do. And I, I did it with a sponsor of course, I did the, I wrote my fourth step and I, he heard my fifth step. And then, so I'd already celebrated a year. In NA, the uh, tradition at that point maybe still is. I'm not sure. I don't attend them, the NA meetings, uh, any longer. It was that, you know, you took quite a while to do the steps, you know, and maybe you would do your fourth step after you celebrated your first year. Mm. Uh So I did my fourth step before I celebrated my first year, and then my fifth step. And then uh, I asked my sponsor to do the sixth step, and the seventh. And he was honest enough to tell me that he hadn't done them. So, and he encouraged me to get another sponsor. I did get another sponsor, and we went, he started me back on the fourth step again. So about the time I got got through the steps, I was sober and clean a few years. Hmm. And actually when we got to the 10th step, he had never done them either. And I said, well, look, uh, you know, cause they, they were writing all the steps. I said, just, you know, write the 10th step and then we'll go over it, write the, the 11th. And he did that. And uh, so I did, I got through those steps like that. Again, you know, God is in charge and uh, it was probably I, all I was capable of doing. Uh, And I didn't do any other step work probably for another 16, 17 years.
0: Hmm. So after 16, 17 years, what made you decide to do further step work? What, what triggered that um, decision?
1: Yeah, I was uh, holding a tremendous resentment against somebody and, you know, it was, uh, I mean, it was eating away at me and somebody Said to me, uh, you know, you need to do the fourth step through the big book. And, uh, you know, I resisted and uh, I was holding on to the idea that I was uh, clean a long time, you know, mm. that somehow that meant something. So I didn't, you know, I didn't buy it initially, and, but then I did. And I found uh, the results of that were very helpful, especially with the resentments.
0: So, so why, why was it different the, the, the way you went through it with the, with the big book rather than the other book that uh, you had originally done it? Why did resentments become more, I guess, able to be released or gotten rid of because of the way you went through the steps the second, or the step four anyways, the second time?
1: So the big book is the original document on the steps, and they give you precise, exact, specific instructions on how to take the steps. And when you put down the resentments, you put the person or the institution or whoever you're resentful at, then the cause. And then the third column is uh, what it affects. And that's really what God should be uh, managing anyway. And and then the fourth column is when they say that kind of, now look at your side of the street. Where are you selfish? Where are you dishonest, where are you self-seeking, and where are are you in fear? Mm -hmm. Where are you fearful? So I was able to look at it that I realized every resentment I had where I was selfish, I basically wanted my own way. And then the dishonesty was either it was an unreasonable expectation. I had actually done that very thing myself. It was actually none of my business. Mm -hmm. None of that is from the Big Book. Uh, that part there about dishonesty, uh, but it was very freeing. The 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 Big Book uh, way of doing the four step is very freeing.
0: So after you did the Big Book four step, did you also go through and do steps five, six, seven, eight, and nine through with, from that? Uh...
1: I actually didn't. The um, person I did it with, uh, he probably assumed I had done the those steps, and to a certain extent, I had. But I then, uh, later on, a couple of years later, I spoke at a rehab, and uh, this gentleman that I met there, he asked me if I'd ever done the steps through the big book. I started talking about the fourth step, and, and he said, "No, all the steps." And I said, "No, I haven't." And again, he said, "I'd like to take you through them." Mm. And again, I balked at it. I really balked at this and because he. I met him several times after that. And each time I met him, he says, are you up for doing those steps? (laughs) And it was actually the way it was, it was a meeting where it wasn't, it was like the meeting before the AA meeting where it was just studying how people were doing the steps, but it was all according to a certain formula. And I did eventually agree to do that. And that, that was very helpful also.
0: Mm. Well, that's, really interesting your, your progression through the steps. I mean, you had been sober for how long when, when you finally said with this person that you met in that rehab where you were speaking and finally said, yeah, let's, let's work through the steps, all the steps as the big book lays it out. How long had you been sober up to that point?
1: I was probably sober 24 years then.
0: Oh yeah. Very interesting. So do you think that those 24 years you were staying sober because of the fellowship, or because of the step work you had done? Tell tell me a little bit about how you think you were able to stay sober for those 24 years.
1: Early in, uh, I guess I was sober maybe a year, year, two or three years, I uh, started to do this certain form of meditation, Christian meditation, that I would do it in the morning and in the afternoon. And I think that kept me kept me sober. But I didn't have the promises and I wasn't happy, joyous and free. Mm. I, at times I was, uh, but it wasn't like, I wasn't at peace uh, mm. with myself. The uh, And I, I believe the reason for that is that I wasn't, you know, what the big book says, which is that as ex problem drinkers, our thoughts should be constantly of others and how we can meet their needs and then actually, in the ninth step, it says our purpose is to fit ourselves to serve God and others and in the twi- you know all through the big book it, and even the prayers, the third step and the seventh step prayers they're basically the 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 wind up of each of the prayers is so you can help other people i that never I never quite resonated with that the way like an awakening would probably have produced that. And yeah, if you asked me to help you, I would, yeah, I would help you. But I wasn't going to go out of my way to do that. And uh, that's not what Dr. Bill and Bob did. They went to a hospital to find somebody. So that part of the program really, it's, you know, it has to do with the, um, the root of the problem, which is selfishness and self-centeredness.
0: Right. So to me, I'm going to kind of reflect this back at you and see if I'm understanding it correctly. So to me, it sounds like for those 24 years, you were maintaining sobriety through your connection with God.
1: And I was going to meetings also. I was going to meetings. Yeah.
0: Hmm. So my understanding and my experience is that, you know, steps one, two, and three, I'm establishing I'm powerless. I had, there's some hope there. But the hope relies on me turning my will and my life over to my higher power. Step four and five is kind of me getting right with myself and saying, okay, looking at the mirror and seeing who I am and then dumping that basically. And six and seven is kind of getting right with God. And then eight and nine is trying to get right with my fellow man and then moving on, you know, then serving others and, and, and having that spiritual awakening Am I reflecting that kind of correctly to you? Is that kind of your experience?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, sure, yeah. In the third step, it says right before the prayer that God will provide everything, and you have two tasks to do, and it's to get close to Him, and to do His work well. Mm. And, and uh, the other thing I didn't mention uh, is that when I did this, the you know talking about the eighth step, when I did the eighth step. In N.A., you know, when I was either two, three, four years, I put everything down that I, where I had caused harm. Mm-hmm. A lot of it had to do with the criminal activity. And my sponsor just said to me, oh, you know, like uh, you've served time, you know, and uh, you've made your amends. So mm-hmm. uh, when uh, paralleling that resentment with that fella that I had there was a nagging thought about that uh, because somebody had asked me uh, a year or two before that, hey, what'd you do with those amends? You know, how'd you make those amends? And I said, oh, my sponsor just said I didn't have to do that. So now I I I had a thought about that for quite a while, which was it was wrong. And recently I've come to realize that even then, I had the willingness to make those amends. I had the willingness, and that's all they ask of us
0: mm-hmm.
1: in the eighth and ninth step. You know, as long as we have the willingness that there's some amends we probably couldn't make. Mm-hmm. But a lot of those amends, I've tried to go back and uh, and make them also.
0: Yeah. And I want to come back to that. And something you said a few minutes ago kind of just. Put turned a light on in my head, and I want to dig there for just a minute before we jump into step eight, which is our will be our focus here in our conversation. You said something to the effect of, "If I would have had a spiritual awakening, I don't know if you said spiritual, but you said awakening." And you know, as you know, the twelfth step, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. Um, when did that spiritual awakening happen in your own experience, or is it something you're still working on? Tell me about that. <laughs>
1: Well, I don't think I would work on it. God would work on it.
0: The, uh, great. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, awakening, I believe that, uh, you know, I haven't drank now in, in quite a while that every, since, since my first, uh, day of not drinking and turning to God in the prison that it's been, it's been a never, uh, you know, awakening it's, it's, it's going on and on. And, uh, the, uh, I think in the back of the big book they talk about uh, spiritual experience. They either say it's uh, educational, or so I'm being. I'm being educated.
0: <laughs> yeah. So so, what what is your what what do you think your spiritual awakening stat? I don't know status is the right word. That's such a terrible word in this. But where do you think you are on that process? I mean, as you look at your own conversion to God. How how do you feel about that right now, as opposed to, you know, as you shared a few minutes ago, you had not yet had that awakening.
1: I mean, where, where I am now is basically the, uh, you know, there's a phrase, uh, trust God, clean house and help, help others. Mm-hmm. So, and we do that in the action steps, which are at the end of the third step, they tell you, now we're going to uh, launch into so action, vigorous action, actually.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's four and nine is to clean house. Mm-hmm. And then when we clean house, uh, basically we live in step 10, 11, and 12.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I would say that uh, that's where I'm at now. I'm living in step 10, 11, and 12. There's constant reminders in those, especially 10, 11, on what to do throughout the day, You know, starting in the morning, on awakening. And uh, asking God to direct your thinking and then, you know, pause when agitated during the day and ask God um, what to do or uh, how can I best serve thee, thy will not mine be done. They actually say that should be a constant thought mm. throughout the day. And it, actually that, that's the proper use of the will. And in the 11th step, at the end there, the last page says, uh, you know, many times during the day, we should be saying, thy will not mine be done. Then we're less likely. And the first thing they say we're less likely to be in is excitement.
0: So you mentioned here just a minute ago, you know, steps three and nine are the cleaning of 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 house. Step three is my cleaning of my house. Uh, oh, for, cleaning fourth, out. Fourth uh, I'm sorry. Sorry. That's yeah. what I meant. Fourth. The four-step cleaning out of my own house and yeah. and everything of my interior relationship with myself. Step nine, kind of cleaning my house right. with my relationship with others. Right. Um, and step eight is the willingness, becoming willing to clean how clean my house in relationship to others. And, and I'm going to go ahead and read what it what step eight is real quick, word for word, so everybody listening has this. Made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. so I love the word willing in in a lot of different places what What does that i guess principle or that step mean to you as it's written and then tell me a little bit about the word willing if you wouldn't mind
1: if i if i'm working with somebody, I ask them to repeatedly. or or read uh, that passage where it says, you know, we're now at step eight and nine. I think it's about eight pages to how to make amends. And Mm. in like right after they talk about uh, having the willingness to make the amends, it says, uh, I think it asks the crowd, are you willing to go to any length to victory over alcohol? And it's in italics, which means, Anything in the big book in italics means it's very important. Mm-hmm. But also further on, they say are, they kind of ask the same question: Are you willing to go to any lens for the experience for a spiritual experience? And so those two things kind of uh, provide the the push towards the willingness. And also, if you don't have it, uh, if you don't have willingness, you can pray to God and ask for willingness. And some of what you're listing in your a step, you may not have the willingness. And you may want to just, uh, the ones you don't have the willingness say that I may, you know, I can do it later. Mm. But there's, there's ones that I'm going to have the willingness to make and I'll make them. I believe as you're making the amends, you're going to develop the willingness to want to do the other amends also.
0: Mm. So, John, as you, I mean, earlier in this conversation, you said that you were holding on to a resentment, uh, a, a serious resentment against somebody else that was really causing some, and I'm going to put words in your mouth here, but uh, restlessness, irritability, discontent in your own life. And it was causing some issues. And then you went back through the steps again. Tell me a little bit about your experience there when you got to step eight with this particular person that you had all these resentments for. Were you initially willing to make amends with that person?
1: Uh, no, I wasn't initially because I was in a place of self-righteousness that this guy was wrong and I was right. And in fact, I was actually trying to tell his family members he was, which is usually not a good go, but that's how, uh, that's how much I thought that I was right. and. so he went on my eight-step list. I actually made an amends to him. I wrote him a letter. He was incarcerated at the time. And mm. I told him that I had, uh, you know, that I ran a resentment. I was running resentments against him all the time. I didn't mention his part, you know, that I was self-righteous. I was, uh, self-righteous. Uh, I was uh, character assassinating him. I withheld friendship from him, withheld love from him. Uh, I, was the fa- I was the godfather to one of his children. Hmm. Um, that, you know, yeah, I had the willingness to do that. What happened more with that was the fourth step, which uh, I saw in, in the dishonesty part of the fourth step where I'm looking at my side of the street, that I was dishonest in how I was looking at what happened. I wasn't looking at it fully. Mm. And uh, I wasn't looking at what my part was in it, which was the thing. It had, had involved a lot of money, but he never asked me for the money. I willingly gave him the money, mm. and I gave him the money because I was looking for more money back. He was, you know, he was investing, and and uh, I was looking, you know. So there was a sense of greed also, because uh, the thing looked like it was too good to be true. And usually, if that's the case, that's exactly what happens, you know. Mm.
0: So, one thing that I find in well in my own life and also in working with others through the steps is that something like what you shared here, sometimes there's situations where it's really, really hard to see my own part in it. I may truly be a victim, but um, for me, it's really important to recognize, even if my part is like one percent of the whole or less than one percent of the whole to recognize that. Tell me about how you look at those types of situations where it really truly can be looked at as a victim type situation and how I then recognize either my part or how that my part maybe grew and I it affected other relationships in the future from that. In the third step
1: where it talks about that our root root problem is uh, selfishness, self-centeredness driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity. And then under that, it says that we are extreme examples of self-will run riot, but also that our problems are of our own making. So whenever I have an issue now where there's, especially to do with other people, where I'm starting to feel resentful, I know that, uh, I may not know it at the moment, but at some point, I'll. it'll come to me that. There's something wrong with me in this. And so I may call somebody. Well, if I recognize at that point, I'm going to ask God to remove the feeling that I have about that. And then I'll call somebody, especially if I did something blatantly uh, out out of line to see what and how I should make an amends. And then it actually says, and then resolutely look for someone to help, which I don't do at that point. But then, uh, if I had missed it during the day and at night, when I do the nightly review, I go over where was I uh, resentful, where was I selfish, where was I dishonest, and where was I in fear, where was afraid? And actually, what happens is a lot of times it just pops up during that time. Hmm. God is working at that point too, and then uh, you know. Was I thinking about myself most of the time or was I thinking of others, how I could be helpful to them? Do I owe anybody an apology? It all helps uh, to to just jaw my memory possibly. And then that's the uh, kind of, uh, that's what it says at the beginning of the 10th step that we can continuously, you know, watch ourselves for those for. And for anything else also, but you know impatience or intolerance, but specifically for selfishness, dishonesty and and fear and 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 uh, but also in the tenth step, it says that uh, you know throughout the day, we should be asking God, how can I best serve thee? thy will uh, not mine be done you know if if I'm doing that a lot of that, then this other stuff is less likely to happen hmm. in the eleventh step. So I don't say, oh, this is the 10th step. Oh, this is. Uh, it's just I wanted to try and come naturally that throughout the day I'm asking God, how can I best serve Thee? Yeah. So how I can best serve God is I, I, I have to be thinking of how I can help people and basically taking people, taking persons through the steps, and uh, where I'm going to find those people to do that. And a lot of times it's not at meetings. Hmm. So. If I'm thinking a lot about that, a lot of this other stuff is not going to raise its ugly head. Hmm.
0: I I like what you said there, and I'm going to come back to it here in a few minutes. But I want to dig a little bit more on something that you said earlier. A little earlier when you were talking, when we were talking about willingness and the step eight, what step eight is, um, you said, you know, sometimes one cannot be willing but uh, can pray for the willingness and ask God to help create that willingness to, to make amends. Do you have a, an instance that you'd like to share or maybe your own or maybe somebody else who you've worked with who really had a hard time with that and then through a process, maybe a drawn out process of praying for the willingness to help somebody that miracle happened and they were able to soften their hearts and do that.
1: I. It's a couple of places probably in the big book where uh, it says John Barleycorn will beat you into a state of reasonableness. Uh, For the younger uh, listeners, John Barleycorn is, uh, you know, alcohol. Dr. Bob, uh, he balked at the the eighth step and the ninth step. He didn't want to do that. And he went out and drank. And when he came back, uh, he immediately when he, after he is sobered up, he went out one night, uh, one morning, he didn't come back till late at night. And he had started the process of making the amends, which took four years, uh, according to the, that, that particular paragraph. I think that's in a vision for you. Mm-hmm. So that's a great, uh, kind of reminder that if you're not willing to do the eighth step, then, I mean, uh, become willing to make amends to people and then do it in the ninth step that, uh, this, this could possibly happen. The ninth step is, I mean, it doesn't mess around. It basically says that if you need to make amends, if you have harmed anybody, you have to do it. You know, if you want the spiritual experience based on that, uh, you can't, you can't be concerned about yourself and what's the consequences going to be. That's Mm -hmm. a hard one to, you know, to negotiate. Sometimes it could be just as simple as that you would be so embarrassed making the amends that, uh, I'll tell you something that where I, I didn't have the willingness to make this amends because I didn't think I needed to do it. Mm -hmm. But, uh, so I, I work with somebody as a colleague, this is a while back. And I had gone in to her office, um, to, uh, you know, to work in there. I actually had shared an office with her, but that was no longer my office. I had no permission to go into that office. I went in there and then, uh, so the next day, I was uh, in the hallway, and uh, I noticed her umbrella that was, had been in the office, that the umbrella had been in the office. So I then saw her, and I asked her, I says, uh, you know, is this your umbrella? She said, yeah. And I said, oh, I found it in, in the hallway. And I gave her back the umbrella. Mm-hmm. And then that just really bothered me and bothered me. And I finally, uh, I called her and uh, I told her I wanted to talk to her. It was very hard arranging the time because we were both busy, but I finally met her and she invited me into the office and I told her. And I was making the amends for the lie, not the going into the office, but I told her the office and the umbrella. Anyway, so that was a very hard amends to make based on just trying to Safe face, so to speak. Oh, it doesn't matter. She got her umbrella back. Right. She uh, doesn't need to know because she wasn't harmed. That I went into the office. She doesn't even know about it.
0: So, John, with that experience, a lot of people listening will justify or or look at that and say uh, that's not a big deal. Why would that bother John to the point where he felt he had to make amends about it? And I think this is a pretty important thing to talk about here because even little things like that can cause issues. Tell, tell me about why it was so important for you to make that amends and what could have happened if you let that eat at you for a while.
1: You know again after we've done the nine you know the first nine steps we're still uh, taking inventory on selfishness, dishonesty, re- resentment, and, and fear. Um, that wasn't just a, a lie. That was a purposeful lie. That was a lie. I, I knew as I was saying it, it was a lie. So that's why it bothered me so much. I hadn't done that in years. Mm-hmm. That was a thing that was very in my active uh, addiction was I lied all the time. I, you know, like I would lie before I told the truth, even with, whether I had to I didn't have to lie, but I just, it was so habitual because drug use is an illegal, it's illegal. And uh, uh, so, you know, that, that in a sense is trying to justify why I lied, but, you know, you just, as an addict, you just lie to everybody that you come in contact, especially employers and family. So I just, I wanted to clean that up. Um,
0: Yeah, no, that's good. And, and, and if you hadn't have cleaned it up, where could that have led?
1: Well, everything can lead back to the first step. So there was, there was a couple of other, um, you know, to talk to your audience uh, then. Yeah. Uh, so I had done some robberies, and I, I went back, and I just uh, not that long ago, a few years ago, and I went into the places where I robbed, and I told them that I robbed them and was here to make it Right. You know, so there was a lot of fear involved with that. There was a lot of not that there would be any consequences, but it was just it happened so many years ago. Yeah, it's just hard to some of the the amends where you were just a thug Mm -hmm. are are hard to make.
0: What were the reactions of those places that you went into to make those amends?
1: Well, one of them is a famous hotel in New York. I had stole a rug from there. I would imagine that it was a fairly expensive rug. It wasn't from one of the rooms. It was from one of the entrances. I had just Hmm. rolled it up and put it on my back and walked out of there. And I went back and I told them. Now, there's two things going on. One is, which I didn't realize, is that President Obama was going to be staying there that day. Hmm. And I did see these guys standing around. But I I didn't, you know, I was so fearful about approaching the the person. Um, Actually, I wouldn't say fearful. It was more just nervousness, a little anxious about it. Any amends you make, God is there before you make the amends, during you make the amends, and after you make the amends. So God is always with you. And I just, uh, I went to the desk, the front desk. I asked them who was in charge. They sent, the person came over to me. I think I may have mentioned it why I wanted, but the other person came over and they, uh, I, I told them what I had done and they said, uh, you know, where is it? You know, I said, well, this was like ages ago, many, many years ago. And they said, okay, so mm-hmm. you know, they, they kind of put me in a position where they, you know, they were thinking it was silverware or stuff like that. And all they want to do when that happens is you return it. Right. the person was stuck on that. If you can return it, return it. But if you can't, that's it, you know. So I left it at that. And actually, today, thinking about those amends, uh, again, you can actually, it says, take pen to paper, you can actually make the amends through the, through the mail, you Mm -hmm. know, you can write, write a letter to make them. Right. So I was thinking that there's another place too that maybe I'll just write a letter Enclose what I thought the thing was worth and then leave it at that. Hmm. The only issue with that now, I want to talk to my sponsor about it because some of these places that I would be making that kind of events to have gone, undergone new ownership, you know, so I wouldn't be making the events to the person that owned the place in the first place. I would be making it, you know, so I, discussing that with the sponsor, he may say to do, like the thing I had wanted to do with that rug what was to give it to was to donate a rug somewhere and I actually gave it to a friend. But prior to that, I was thinking of, uh, there was a few places around in the County that could possibly use a a rug. And then the other one was a uh, auction house that I walked into and, uh, I told the person that was there, I was in, you know, midtown Manhattan also. And, um, They said that they weren't even alive when that happened and uh, (laughs) they brought somebody else out and they, they were kind of amazed at the whole thing. And then I actually, they gave me a card of the corporate lawyer for the place and Mm -hmm. I contacted her and we had a nice, I wrote her a letter. We had a nice back and forth on it, but did make a substantial donation to a place that uh, teaches them the basics of art artwork.
0: Very cool. So those are some neat experiences of, you know, going back and making amends with old things that could still creep up and cause issues. Um, Is there anything else in relation to becoming willing to make amends step eight that you feel is important to share right now before I move on to, to something else?
1: You know, the most important thing I would, I can think of is uh, just to read the, the big book on the eighth and ninth step. And it tells you the attitude you should have when you're making the amends and it gives you specific instructions on how, how to make it to family. And uh, the amends, whether the person forgives it or not, is not the point. Our point is that we want to clean outside of the street. But if you're trying to make an amends to somebody that doesn't want to hear it, you, you know, you're, don't do that either. Just uh, tell them something like, well, maybe at another time, we can mm-hmm. talk about this. You know, if, if they start to get upset. Right. You know, because you, you remind them exactly what they did or why you want to make the amends. And they now remember it. They may have fought, forgotten it or whatever. So yeah. I've never had an incident like that uh, because I spent a lot of time where I didn't make any amends. When I first made amends, I did make amends to my immediate family. I did make them and people surrounded me that, that I knew at that point. But a lot of those amends where I'd hurt people, harmed them, uh, I didn't make the amends for, for many, many, many years. Hmm. Just that an added thought also um, mm-hmm. is that any sponsor that you work with, he's probably going to tell you a little different something about how to make the amends. And I think that's okay. If you don't have the willingness to make the amends, whichever the amends it is, yeah, you can talk to your sponsor about it. You may, who knows, maybe you would get willingness doing that. But if you, you want to keep asking God, you know, like, how does he want you to make this amends? Does he want you to make it now? You know, does he want you to make it later? You know, like God, again, is in charge. The person that you want to make the amends to may not be open to the amends at that point. Maybe that's why you would make it later. But uh you can ask God and believe me, you'll, you'll get an answer from that. Hmm.
0: Thank you for that. Earlier, you mentioned that, you know, you, in your own life, some of the things you do is looking for people to serve, maybe go through the steps with, and then you said something interesting. You said, and I don't find them all in the rooms. I don't find them all in these recovery groups. Tell me about, how you find people that aren't in the rooms and then how you start serving those people and talking to them about the steps.
1: Like where I would want to look for people is what you would call wind up giants, jails, Mm -hmm. or like, I just, um, I met with somebody yesterday that I would like to possibly work with people. Um, to take them through the steps, but I would have to qualify them first to see mm-hmm. if they were willing to do it. Right. Uh, and uh, that's not, that was outside of a meeting. It's a nonprofit here in the County. And I'm going to a church on a Saturday that feeds the homeless mm. and going to talk to you know, people there. So there are other places. And I, I used to chair a meeting at the jail but in the in the twelfth step, it says that we are we try to carry the message, and also more importantly, it doesn't say it, but we're not in the result business. God is in the result business. Mm. As long as I'm trying to carry that message, i I think God is all right with that. Plus, you can do other things. Uh, in like my county is uh, economically, uh, you know, deprived. You can do other things. Make sandwiches maybe and. Distribute them or uh, volunteer at a pantry. I pick up people in my car to drive them places. Uh, in the bad weather, it's it gets pretty bad up here. This winter is pretty mild, but we've had winters that are brutal. Hmm. People are walking on the main street and you could possibly help them or offer them.
0: Yeah. I, I, I love how you are describing the working of steps 10 through 12, especially 12 here in this, in this uh, last little bit here. It's good stuff and great example. And I know you do it not for your own, you know, pumping yourself up. You do it because of the love that you have for God and the love you have for your fellow man. And
1: One last thing. Uh, at the core of my being, I'm still selfish and self-centered. So the, uh, I'm not doing that on my own you know, God is the uh, is the uh, initiator of that. And uh, when I was in active addiction, I was in Harlem uh, in New York City. I was crossing the street and a woman was trying to get my attention. She was very old, very, very frail. And it was one of the big avenues there and she wanted to get across it. And she was trying to get my attention. I realized that she wanted me to take her across and I didn't want to do it. I wanted to get to where I was, but something told me to do it and uh, she grabbed my arm and I walked her across and the whole time I was thinking of where I had to go and we get mm-hmm. to the other side and she just looked at me and she was mouthing the word thank me she had no teeth in her mouth mm. and I felt a, a complete like a joy mm. wash through me and uh, that's because that's what we're supposed to do we're supposed to help other people mm. but of course I didn't recognize that as You know, there's something about that you should think about and look at. I'm not that deep a person that I can actually do that, you know.
0: Mm. I like that. Thank you for sharing that experience too. That's very meaningful. There will be people that listen to this who are either in active addiction or maybe they're in denial and not admitting um, out loud or even really to themselves out loud that they have a problem. How would you go about inviting somebody who's listening to this to attend their first? meeting recovery meeting i mean there's a lot of fear that goes into that in pretty much everybody the walking through that door the first time so how would you encourage somebody to do that
1: well thank you for asking me that uh, just i'll indirectly a, uh, answer the question which is that the i had mentioned earlier that i was over 20 years sober until i realized exactly what the problem is and the problem is is i i take a drink and the drink takes me that once I, it touches my lips, the alcohol touches my lips, or the drug touches my lips, or my, however I'm taking it. And this doesn't happen every time, but as an addict, it's going to happen 99% of the time, which is you, the phenomenon craving sets in, and then you cannot stop. And uh, so the answer for that is complete abstinence. They say that in the big book. The problem is that we drink because it provides a solution for our, how we're feeling. And though it's injurious, uh, it's so elusive, we can't find it anyplace else. This is what it says in the doctor's opinion. And so being it's so elusive, it's the only place we can get this high. We can't get it from living life. So we keep going on, and we can't recognize the truth from the false. The false is that if we drink, we're going to... Uh, the truth is, is if that we drink, we're going to set off this phenomena of craving. And the false is that we can do it one more time, that this time is going to be different, that one day I will stop. and then uh, the unmanageability of the first step is not the consequences. The unmanageability is that we cannot manage the decision to stay stopped. Hmm. That's where we can't recognize the truth from the false, that we think that we can stay stopped. So if you're listening and you have a chronic history of relapse, not even relapse, but you you swear off, you promise God, you promise your parents, you promise your wife, you promise your husband, that you're not going to do that again. And then you go back out and do it again. Well, you are of the hopeless variety beyond human aid that is in need of a spiritual experience. And you can only find that in AA or NA or whatever your your particular addiction is, and, and you have the desperation of a drowning man, then you'll go to a meeting. Hmm. It's hard to encourage people to go to meetings uh, if, they don't, if it doesn't resonate with them, if they don't think that the meeting, you know, everybody's in the opinion it doesn't work, but you can, you can forge all through that if you're believing in God and that if you take the steps, you have the spiritual awakening, you become a new person. You know, so you you can't get that anywhere. You can't get that in religion. You can only get it in a built-in program that's a bare bones approach to having a spiritual experience, where you stop thinking about yourself and you're not nailed to yourself any longer. You're thinking of how you can help other people, Mm. and it's a built-in approach to that too. You know, the Twelve Steps says that having had a spiritual experience, we try to carry this message to addicts who still suffer, and it's actually. The reason for doing that is they also put in there for selfish addicts that, look, it's going to ensure immunity against your next
0: drink. Yeah. Well, John, this has been great. Do you feel there's anything else that you need to share at this point?
1: I can't think of anything, so I guess, no, there isn't. But it's been a pleasure to do this, and I hope that, you know, one person can hear this and, uh, again, be so low in their addiction that. They're willing to do anything, you know, including going to meeting. And uh, I would suggest somebody to go to meetings, and if they think that it's not the right meeting, go to another meeting. You will find a meeting you know, somewhere,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but you have, to, you have to look. And maybe the first meeting is what you're gonna need. Also, there's a great power in fellowship and in community, and, and you're going to get that, you walk into an AA meeting, there is no requirements, there's no membership, there's no dues. Uh, people are gonna welcome you, they're gonna uh, tell you to come in. We've been waiting for you, we want you here. Doesn't matter if you if you smell, if you're drunk, you're gonna be very much welcome and they're gonna tell you to keep coming back. And I think for many people, I was one of those that that's what I needed, you mm. know. Um, but, uh, I do believe in the big book approach to the steps which is for a new person to try and get them through it very quickly because it says that where it says we have no we've lost the power of choice when it comes to alcohol that's where you've lost your a part of your humanity mm-hmm. and at the end it says we have no defense against the first drink that book was written 80 years ago and they've never changed that saying time will give you the defense but in that paragraph it says that We cannot recall to mind with sufficient force even what happened a week or a month ago. So that week or a month ago, that may be all the time you have to have a spiritual experience before you go back out again. Mm. And my own experience with that is that when I did stop the alcohol and the drugs and I would go to my mother's house and lay up there, it usually within a week or a month, I was back out again.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you very much, John. This has been very meaningful for me, and I hope it's been meaningful for you, too.
1: Yes, it has been. Justin, thanks very much for asking me to do this. I really appreciate it.
0: So there you have it. Step eight. Made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. How about that honesty with John? I keep trying to see myself and watch my words and my deeds to ensure the kind of honesty that John is really striving to live today. Now, if you have felt something in your heart or mind that is motivating you to act on it, whether it be to share this episode or this entire series of the Journey Through Life podcast with a loved one, or to start taking some steps yourself to get a personal shortfall strengthened, I ask of you, please act on it. If you don't, it doesn't do you or anyone else any good. It can, however, and will, make all the difference in your life if you do act on it. Now for the housekeeping part of this program, please go and check out, check us out on Facebook and Instagram at, at jtlpodcast. Like and follow us. I have recently started reposting old and original episodes from the new or from the Know and Do podcast on Facebook and in our blog at www.jtlpod.com. To learn of the origins of this podcast and project, I would be honored if you went and checked those out too. You can also drop us a note about your own experiences, strength, and hope at the jtlpodcast at gmail.com. Perhaps you and I can have a conversation something like what I had with John here. Please visit our sponsors, who I purposely don't put at the beginning of this episode or any of the other in this 12-week series, but they really are helping this podcast continue forward. They are alifeuntold.com, shepherdbrackets.com, and radfordpineshomedecor.com. At com, use promo code JUSTIN to save 10% on your order. And at shepherdbrackets and RadfordPines. Use promo code JTLPOD5 to save 5% on your orders there. These conversations that I have recorded in this Journey and Recovery series have been life-changing for me, as I have been applying many new concepts into my own daily life from the lessons I am learning. For example, with John, I am trying to be much more honest with myself and with others, just from listening to him and his story. And I'm definitely becoming a different and better person for it. Have a great week. Press forward one day at a time.